The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you to open up to the book of Colossians. Uh, we, last week, began a new sermon series in the book of Colossians, except last week we, we just barely were beginning to scratch the surface uh, as we were introduced to the Colossian story and where the Colossian church comes from, how it got its start, who was a part of it, and some of the, the wonderful redemptive drama associated with it. So last week we were looking at the Colossian story. Uh, this week we begin to see the Colossian greeting. And I really want us to uh, receive the same greeting. So if you haven't already, open with me to the book of Colossians. It's on page 983. Lord willing, you will become uh, very familiar with the book of Colossians in the days ahead. This is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Let me just remind you very, very briefly that when Paul wrote this letter to the church of Colossae, he was writing a letter to a group of people that he has never met. So the citizens of Colossae who were members of the church meeting at Philemon's house never met Paul. So I just want to point out the wonderful parallel to that you and I, as we read the Scriptures, are, in an earthly sense, reading the work of a man that we have never met. We've never met Paul. So we are very much in the same place as the Church of Colossae, receiving a letter from someone writing to encourage us, writing to instruct us. We've never met him. We want to receive it the same way. Now, of course, we also believe that when Paul writes, he writes under divine inspiration. And so ultimately, the author is God himself. But in an earthly sense, Paul puts pen to paper by way of his scribe Timothy and writes this letter and sends it off to a church, a church in a small town, actually, if you remember, a church in an agrarian context that was otherwise overlooked by many other places. And Paul is writing to this church to tell them and encourage them to continue to walk in the faith of Jesus Christ and not be dissuaded or persuaded to chase other worldviews and philosophies that are contrary to the gospel, but rather to fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ and have your life so shaped by Him. It seems then entirely appropriate for us to receive the letter to the Colossian church in the exact same way from a man we haven't met, but who nevertheless we are linked to by the Holy Spirit who brings to us the Word of God. So, let's pray, and then we will hear the Word of God to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we open up the Scriptures, that You, by Your Spirit, would open up our hearts, that You would open up our minds, that we might both read and discern with understanding of the mind, but also receive with faith in the heart the truth that You would proclaim to us here in the Scriptures. We believe, Lord, that this is Your living Word, not just ink on page, but Spirit-inspired and therefore living and active. So send that same Spirit upon us to receive this with faith, we pray now, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now hear the Word of God from Colossians 1 and... Uh, yes, just the first two verses. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. 
So may he write his truth on our hearts. Now, yes, keep your Bible open, uh, because I hope you will see how even in just a greeting, there's a lot here for us. Uh, there's a lot here for us in a situation where we can receive the same greeting that the Colossian church received. Now, I want to point out to you that oftentimes if you're at all familiar with the New Testament epistles, or if you were to look around in some of the other 13 letters of Paul, that Paul always begins his letters in this way, which is something of a formula and something of a polite custom in uh, ancient culture at this time, to the degree that often people sometimes assume that these greetings are incidental and meaningless. They're just a formula. So like when you receive an email and you know it's just a junk email because it's, it's got a stock greeting, you know, dear sir or madam or, you know, to whom it may concern, and you can see it sometimes in the preview, you just delete it right away because you know that they don't know you. And you know that they just want something from you or they want to, you know, get your information somehow and you don't want to do that and you just cast it off, right? And so oftentimes I think we're tempted to think that these general greetings are incidental and meaningless to us, but I want to argue to you that they are not. That Paul's greeting here is not incidental and meaningless. It is both authoritative and relevant to us right now. It is authoritative, first of all, and relevant, second of all, but first of all, authoritative in the sense, here you see Paul saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. This is the Paul of the Apostle Paul, who in Acts chapter 9 is converted and becomes a Christian believer, who is an apostle of Christ, and that means that he is the Christ, the Chrysos, that word in Hebrew, the Messiah. Paul is saying, I am a messenger of the Messiah. And when Paul is writing to this church, he says, this is who I am in relationship to Jesus Christ, and I, as an apostle of Christ, have a word for you. Now, just again, another quick reminder that Paul, because he had never been to Colossae, he preached the gospel in Ephesus, which was about 100 miles away from Colossae. And citizens of Colossae would go to Ephesus and hear the gospel and then return to Colossae to say, we've heard this wonderful news about Jesus who has lived and died and risen and this man Paul told us about him and we want our fellow citizens to hear this message as well. The person that brought the gospel back to Colossae was a man named Epaphras. You can scan down to verse 7 and see Paul referring to Epaphras in chapter 1 verse 7 just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. But Paul is introducing himself to this church who's never met him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostolic authority, in other words, carries the representative authority of Christ himself. Very quickly by way of application, the faithful teacher, the faithful preacher, the person to whom you should give your hearing is the person who is coming to say, this is what Christ has done. This is who Christ is. If you encounter a teacher or a preacher that's constantly talking about themselves, making reference to themselves, and everything is about themselves, you need to run away. Because they are an apostle of themselves and not of Christ. Paul comes to say, who I am is in relationship to Jesus Christ, and that is what is most important. And so therefore, his greeting is here for, uh, therefore authoritative, but it's also timely. And the reason why it's timely is, I think, what I want to spend uh, all of our time looking at this morning. There has never been a generation, I think, more burdened with the question of, who am I? Who am I? 
this generation, our society, our particular cultural moment is obsessed with issues of identity. Isn't it? Asking questions like, who am I? What am I? How do I determine who I am? Am I able to determine who I am? Does somebody else tell me who I am? Who am I? Issues of identity. And so the Apostle Paul, in this letter, even at the introduction, offers us some vital teaching to help us answer that question from the perspective of the Creator, from the perspective of the Redeemer, because He who creates and He who redeems provides an identity for us that is true and wholesome and life-giving. In the world today, just like in the first century, there are many views and philosophies that want you to buy into a way of looking at the world and defining yourself according to certain standards. But in the Scriptures, God tells you who you are. In the Scriptures, God tells you who He has redeemed you to be so that you don't need to wonder, who am I? Because the Bible tells you. And right away, in these two opening verses, Paul sets out for us some very fundamental components of Christian identity in what I think we can see here as four different relationships, just right here, to help you answer the question, who am I? Who am I? Here in these opening verses, Paul says that our identity is shaped by four different primary relationships. First of all, a relationship to God. Second of all, a relationship to one another. Third, a relationship to Jesus. And fourth, a relationship to where you are or your context. Those four relationships are lifted up here as Paul writes in this introductory word to these Colossian Christians to help them know who they are in relationship to God and one another and to Christ and to where they live. So that's what we want to see. Who are you? Who are you? What does the Bible say? Notice how when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he greets them, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, verse 2, to whom? To the saints. To the saints. Paul says that our relationship to God as Christian believers is that of being saints. The word in Greek is hagios, or holy ones. And this would have been an astonishing thing for these primarily Gentile Christians to receive from a Jewish man. Paul is Jewish, and it would have never been the case culturally to ever be thought to be appropriately identified as holy from a Jewish person, speaking of a Gentile people, because from the Jewish perspective, uh, only the priests were holy because they were the ones called into holy service. People would have never considered themselves holy. They would, of course, believe that God is holy, and He sets apart really special people to serve Him, and they're holy, but not other people. And I think we still think that way today, too. We think that there are Christians, right? But then we think that there are these, like, super-Christians. There's this extra super special class of Christians and we would say, well, they're the holy ones. They're the saints. People that I really look to and I'm really impressed with, th those are the saints. Not, not, not average Joe Christian and Jane Christian over here. Not us. But Paul uses the word saint or holy ones to refer to any Christian. The term saint in the New Testament refers to the Christian 
believer. Now, it would be really arrogant if we self-designated ourselves as saints. If I say, well, I, I call myself a saint. I want you to refer to me as you know, Saint Zachary or something like that. That would be the height of arrogance, wouldn't it? But we're not the ones that call ourselves saints. Who is the one that calls you a saint? God. God calls you a saint. It's not arrogant then to identify yourself as a saint if God is the one who says you are first. He is the one who has set us apart by His grace and called us His holy ones. I want you to linger on that, will you? That in Jesus Christ, as a Christian believer, you are a saint. Now that's hard for us to really embrace because you and I are those who live on this side of glory and still sin and struggle with the flesh, don't we? We're tempted with all manner of things. We feel like we're losing a fight against sin more than we win it. And deep down, we're convinced that God is going to require us to meet some kind of standard that we know that we can't meet. So we end up discouraged and then forsake trying altogether and we end up just maybe walking away. And to that, I think we should say two things. When we're, when we're tempted and discouraged to think of ourselves not as saints, we should say for. Two things. First of all, one, if you find yourself in a consistent pattern of disobedience, you should be ashamed and you should repent. Because it's not fitting for the Christian believer to be known and identified by their sin. But secondly, if you find yourself doubting that you are a saint, if you find yourself doubting that God's grace should be so free, you need to also cling to Jesus Christ and the gospel that motivates you to press on with your new identity in Jesus Christ. You have a new identity if you're a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are not the culmination of your sins. You are not the culmination of your mistakes and your guilt and your failure. You are not your guilt if you are a Christian. You are no longer just a sinner. The Bible says you're a saint. You are a saint. That's who God says you are. The gospel is not the good news that says, do this and become a saint. The gospel is the good news that says, in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And so the motivation for the Christian life is not to do this so that God will love me, but rather that God has loved me infinitely in Jesus Christ, so the gospel calls me to be what I already am. Do you see that? And I want you to notice how important that is of a motivation for the Christian life. The motivation for the Christian life is not to do and be more to become something that you're presently not so as to achieve some new status to make God approve of you, but rather that God through Jesus Christ already loves you and already has approved of you so you should be who you already are. It's a totally different motivator. This is who God says the Christian is. The God, God says that in Jesus Christ you are a saint. And this is God's perspective of the church. We oftentimes think of the saints and we're thinking about individuals, but we can also think corporately of the church as the gathering of saints. God's perspective of the church is a gathering of saints. You know, some people look at the church and they don't see that. Some people look at the church and they, they would much rather focus with a magnifying glass on the church's blemishes. Emphasizing with stark contrast the church's imperfections. And I think sometimes you and I can be guilty of that as well. When we find, when we sin against one another, 
or we make it difficult to live together in community and we end up focusing on that rather than looking charitably upon one another and thinking the first thought that I have about you is that in Jesus Christ you're a saint. Because that's who the apostle says you are. That's who God says you are. Our relationship to God is that of saints. We should learn to consider the church as God does, holy and lovely, the gathering of saints. Paul says our relationship to God is that of saints. Secondly, notice how he also gives us a relationship to one another. Our relationship to God is that of saints. We are saints to God through Christ, but our relationship to one another, he says, secondly, in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers. Paul is lifting up here the relationship that we have with one another in the church. He calls them brothers. Now, there are many ways to speak about the church, and there are many ways that the Bible does speak about the church, many different metaphors that are used. The Bible uses the metaphor of the church as the temple of the living God, and you are living stones that build up the temple as Christ the cornerstone is built up upon the sure foundation. The church is called a city on a hill, or the church is often called elect exiles dwelling in a foreign land, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we are uh, the, the bride of Christ, the bridegroom, or sheep of the good shepherd, or many different descriptions the Bible uses to describe the church. But the most basic and most consistent description of the church in the New Testament is that of a family. Family. Christ draws together through His new covenant work a new family. People of different backgrounds, people with different stories, who find themselves called together, joined together in loving relationship as a family, as brothers and sisters. Paul says that our relationship to one another is that of brothers, united together in a family, so let, we say, let us say by way of application that your relationship as a Christian believer is yes to God as a saint, but it's also to one another as brothers and sisters. In fact, in 1 John 3.14, the Apostle John tells us that's actually a mark of true saving faith. 1 John 3.14 says that we know we have passed from death to life, meaning we know that we are a Christian. And you would expect him to say something just really profound here, right? We know that we have passed from death to life if we love the brothers. If we love each other. Right? It reminds you of the song, well, know we are Christians by our love for one another. Do you love your fellow Christians? Do you love your fellow Christians? Not just the ones that are convenient for you to love, you understand, right? Not just the ones that you already enjoy, but do you love your fellow Christians who by worldly status, whether by economic, social, or educational status, would have had no reason to have a part of your life, but through Christ have become a part of your life, and not just a part of your life, but essential part of your life as a part of a family of God in Christ? Do you love your fellow Christians? Yes, even the ones that annoy you. Yes, even the ones who, if you were evaluating only on an earthly status, you would never associate yourselves with. Do you love your fellow Christians? The Bible says it's a mark of saving faith. Uh, when I was in college, the college campus ministry was called BASIC. It was an acronym for short. Brothers and Sisters in Christ. 
And I always thought it was a bit of a cheesy name for a college ministry and acronyms and all the rest. And actually, when I was a freshman, in the second semester freshman, and I started going to these things, I thought, I don't want to really be with these people because they're not the type of people that I would choose to hang out. I was on all sports teams and all the rest, and those are my people. And then there are these Christians, and I think to myself, I, nah, I don't want to associate myself with them. But then growing in faith and growing in Christ means that the way I look at those people changes because you come to realize that those people are your people. Not because they're just like you or have the same taste as you or look the same as you or talk the same as you perhaps or come from the same background, but because they love the same Savior. And that's what matters most, isn't it? The Lord changed my heart from looking at people only externally and saying, I don't want to hang out with them, to saying, I love these people. The church is a household of faith and the family of God, and Paul refers to them as faithful brothers. They're faithful because they place their faith in Christ, but also because their inward attitude of trusting Christ brings about outward acts of faithfulness to Christ. And so the church is the family of God that believes together and presses on together in Christian obedience. We walk together as a family. Our relationship to one another is as a family. So Paul says, related to God, we are saints. Related to one another, we are family. Third, as it relates to our relationship with Jesus, notice what he says, still in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers who are in Christ. In Christ. He gives them their spiritual location here. Now, this phrase, in Christ, is going to be used a lot in the book of Colossians. Skip ahead. Look at verse 4. Paul writes, Since we heard of your faith in Christ, that is, the Christ is the Savior to whom we give ourselves to, and we are united to Him in faith. He uses that exact same language of faith in Christ in chapter 2, verse 5. In chapter 1, verse 27, Chapter 1, verse 27, he writes, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Paul speaks of the Christian as someone who is in Christ, and Christ is in them to speak of this spiritual and mystical union of relationship between the Christian believer and the Savior Himself, that their lives are joined together. That we are in Christ. Also, chapter 1, verse 28, speaks of presenting Christians as mature in Christ, growing in Christ. Another point of emphasis here is chapter 3, verse 3, as Paul speaks about the fact that our very life is hidden with Christ in God, such so that the Christian's identity and relationship to Christ becomes so closely knit that we become more and more like Jesus, our Savior, as we are in Him and He is in us. Now, as we go through the book of Colossians, we'll see how significant this is, this language of being united to Christ by faith. It's everywhere in the New Testament, and it's so important. But the big thing to emphasize here is that Paul writes to these Colossian Christians to say, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and He is the fullness of God, and you don't lack anything if you are in Christ. He's writing to the Colossian Christians who find themselves tempted oftentimes 
to believe that they do lack something or they need to look elsewhere or there is some additional worldview or philosophy that they need to supplement their Christianity to make their life more satisfying. And Paul is saying, no, it's not true. If you are in Christ, you have everything that you need. What you need is not to discover something outside of Jesus. What you need is to know more deeply the truth of Jesus and grow in Him and grow in your faith union with Him. Not to look elsewhere in some impressive fascinations or passing fads of the world, but to know Jesus more deeply. Who you are, Paul says, is who you are in Christ. Mystically, spiritually united to Him by faith. You are before God a saint. You are among one another brothers and sisters in Christ. You are in relationship to Jesus, united to Him. So he tells you where you are spiritually, that you are united to Christ. And then the final thing that he does is that he gives you your relationship to where you are, your context. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. I want you to see that the, the locations of in Christ and at Colossae are, are, are next to each other in a sense of relationship. Spiritually speaking, you are located in Christ. Physically speaking, you are located in Colossae, at Colossae. These are real people in a real place gathering at Philemon's house to learn about Jesus and learn to follow Him. The saints of God who are brothers and sisters who are united together in Christ are at Colossae. And you say, well, that's revolutionary. <laughs> but it is, actually. Do you understand? Because Colossae is a Asia Minor town, Roman province. And in Colossae and amongst Colossae would have been all manner of worldviews and philosophies and religions, whether from uh, Roman paganism to Roman secularism and Greek philosophy and strange uh, Jewish transitions away from First Temple Judaism and all sorts of strange apparitions would have been all over the city, all over the town. Even though it was a small place, these things come into small towns and influence people who live in small towns. And Paul is saying, you live here. You live here. And you should put your feet firmly on the ground here at Colossae. Why? Don't run and hide and take shelter, church. Don't run and hide and take shelter, church at Colossae, from the worldviews and pressures that are around you. I was listening yesterday to a, a, an interview with an author of a book that's on my list, which is a long list, probably won't get to it, but I understand the concept. There is this, there is this thing that has been happening for, so over the last three decades or so. You may or may not have heard of it. It's called Christian Reconstructionism, and it's extraordinarily popular in the Pacific Northwest. The American South is no longer seen as a safe haven of Christianity, but there is a very niche movement called Christian Reconstructionism moving to the Pacific Northwest, especially in uh, eastern Washington and western Idaho, that is essentially saying, the culture is lost, we're going to make a new one. And we are going to form an exclusively Christian town governed by exclusively Christian laws. And we will shut out all things non-Christian. Christian Reconstructionism in the American Northwest. It's growing in popularity as people are throwing up their hands and saying, it's lost, let's start over. Now I could spend an hour 
talking about that. And I would imagine you would have some thoughts about that as well. But let me say this. That entire idea is based off an idea that's fundamentally flawed. Why? Because the kingdom of Jesus is not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Because the kingdom is spiritual, the light must shine in the darkness wherever there is darkness. If the Christian believers say, let's hide. Let's run away. Let's go shelter ourselves away from all of these other influences. Where will the light shine? The kingdom is spiritual and the light must shine in the darkness wherever there is darkness. Jesus says, do you remember? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And so Paul is reminding these Colossian believers, you are the light of the gospel in Colossae. So do you think it's too much of a stretch for us to say it this way? You are the light of Christ in Edgington. Do you believe that? Or rather, we should ask this question. Do you believe that our community needs to be illuminated with the light of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. And I think the important thing here to realize is that Paul is writing to a real people in real places. And we are a real people in a real place hearing the same word of the Lord and learning to know and follow Jesus more sincerely. And Paul says, before we get to anything else, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know who you are in relationship to God. You've got to know who you are in relationship to one another, who you are in relationship to Christ, who you are in relationship to your context. This is who you are. You are shaped by the gospel. You are a saint. You are ransomed, loved, forgiven, and delighted in. If you are in Christ, you are a brother or sister in the family of God. If you are in Christ, you are part of the local gathering of the church of God, the, 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 the new people of God here in Edgington. And not just in these walls, but the people of God in the church in every place. But this is who you are. You're shaped by the gospel. So I would just ask you the question, of these four identities, and we could lift up many others, but here, these four, which one of these are you most tempted to doubt? Which one of these are you most tempted to not believe or to think doesn't matter, perhaps? What are you tempted to not believe with regard to who you are in Christ? Whether you struggle to believe you are really, truly forgiven as a saint or really, truly struggle to believe that you actually belong, right? Do you know how many people struggle to believe that? That they're, that they're wanted? That you belong in the church? Or that in Christ, you are in Christ as a Savior who claims you as His own? We need to learn to live with gospel lenses on. Learn to live to see ourselves as God tells us who we are in the midst of a world that is constantly trying to redefine or present some new notions of defining yourself according to X, Y, or Z, or whatever the case must be. As Christian believers, we must learn to understand our identity in relationship to the God who made us and the God who redeems us and calls us together to say, this is who you are. I always thought I was strange because I was the only person in my family that didn't need glasses. Well, whether you need corrective lenses or not, right, you need gospel lenses to look at your life. You need the lens of the gospel to define who you are, to see yourself differently, your church differently, and your community differently, so that we can be shaped by the grace and peace that is offered to us through Christ because of God the Father. And Paul is writing to the Colossian Christians to say, the gospel shapes all of life. 
and Christ reigns over all of life as the preeminent Savior. And if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to grow in your faith, you must learn to follow the one who is the preeminent Messiah. And that's why he writes this book. And by God's grace, may we attempt to grow in that knowledge as well. Why? Because you need to know who you are. You need to know who you are in Christ because the light of Christ must shine in our community. And if not us, then who? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the witness of the church. Not just this church, of course, Lord, but Your true church that truly proclaims Christ and believes the Scriptures. We pray that that we as Christians might live as lights in the world, not in hostility and not in antagonizing contrast or arguments and fights, but in compelling witness of the beauty and goodness of Jesus who provides to all a winsome understanding of who they really are. Help us, Lord, to know ourselves first before we ever attempt to tell somebody else who they are. Bless us as we grow in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.